1897, the first conference of the National Council of Women declared this. In all cases where men and women are engaged in the same work, either in the employment of government or of private individuals, equal wage should be paid for equal work. So here we are in 2021 and we're not there yet. Far from it, actually. The gender pay gap stubbornly sits at more than 9%. The ethnicity gap is much worse. We have a persistent gender pay gap, you know, depending on what figure you use, but the most commonly used one is median hourly rates. It's been sitting around 9% for over a decade. Some people say it's considerably higher than that. And then, of course, more recently, we've really started to look at not just the gender pay gap by itself, but the ethnic pay gap. In the intersection of the two, for example, a 27% pay gap between a Pacific female worker and a European male worker. That's right, 27%. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and today on The Detail, on this day in 1972, the Equal Pay Act came into force, making it illegal to pay someone less for the same job. We look at what's happened and what it will take to close the gap including a new campaign launched today, Mind the Gap, calling on bosses of big companies to measure their pay gaps and make them public. But first, Carol Beaumont is with the National Council of Women and has been pushing for equal pay for four decades. Pay gap is not just a number and it's not just about it being unfair and discriminatory. Clearly it is those things, but it actually has a real impact on people's lives. I mean, it means that, you know, for many, it, it is actually about living in poverty. And, and that's particularly true, you know, where women are the made breadwinner and raising children. It means not having adequate income or missing opportunities to do things, impact on health and well-being, ability to save for retirement. And also, I think, feeling undervalued. The Ministry for Women estimated on average for, for women that that gender pay gap over a lifetime was something in the vicinity of $888,000. So would it be more than half our workers are affected by either a gender or ethnic pay gap? I don't have that figure and I can't mm. swear to you, but it's a significant number of people and it's a long-standing long issue and it has big, big implications. Yeah. So... Let's take it back a little bit because when we talk about the gender pay gap or the ethnic pay gap, it's not as simple as just saying this woman is paid less per hour than this man. Well, certainly there's a number of factors in it. So let's let's look at it. Even for the same job, a man and a woman say doing precisely the same job, or a Pacific person and a Pākehā person doing the same job, we still have in this country unequal pay. So pay for the same job that's not equal and is based on factors like discrimination. And part of the problem is that for most workers, we don't know what other people are earning. We also have an Equal Pay Act, which really you know, doesn't have the sort of degree of monitoring and enforcement that would be needed. So one of the real issues is we need to get clear about what other people are being paid. And, and that's why things like uh, collective bargaining is good, because you can see what other people covered by that agreement gets. But even having you know, formal pay structures that are, are promulgated will also help, you know, as long as they're adhered to. Some of the pay gap is also because of where people are working. So we have occupational segregation 
going on. And so, you know, again, looking at women concentrated in jobs that have been undervalued for far too long, you know, all of the caring type jobs, for example, jobs where women have dominated have tended to be undervalued when you try and compare things like the skills and responsibilities of the job. So that's the pay equity piece. And of course, we've now, we had amendments to the Equal Pay Act so that people can start to deal with those pay equity cases. There's been, you know, work going on in that space since the, well, since the late 80s, really, um, in terms of trying to get pay equity sorted. And these are the, these are the sort of cases like the nurses, the midwives, um, librarians, clerical workers, all of those those occupations. So that, that issue's going on as well. Where people have tried to analyse what sits behind it, I mean, some of it is, they, they say with women, 20% of the gender pay gap can be accounted for by differences between men and women in education, occupation, choice, age, type of work and family responsibilities. The remaining 80% cannot be easily explained other than by behaviour, attitudes and assumptions about women and work, including unconscious bias and discrimination. Mm. So that, you know, there's been a number of studies done on what is the basis of this pay gap. So we've been trying to fix it for decades, more than a century if you go back to that first conference of the National Council of Women. But here's how tricky it is. Genesis Energy is one of only four, that's right, four companies that disclose their gender pay gap. Its chief executive, Mark England, is a leader for change in the workplace. So you'd think his company's gap would be admirably low. 35%, but it was sitting above 40% a couple of years ago. Mark, can I, so when you say 35%, is that the the gap? That That is the difference between... That is the difference between the median female and the median male, a genesis. And at face value, that's a huge gap, but there's a number of things driving that. And we, we know that um, on like-for-like role basis, our gap is very low. It's below 2%. But on a total organization basis, it's very high. You might, un- you might ask, well, why is that? What's the difference? Well, you've got three, three things that are in this gap. One is pay equity, um, like-for-like roles. Another one is leadership progression. So if we've got um, enough women moving into senior leadership roles versus men, because obviously the more senior you are, the more you're paid. And then there's, you've got women in different types of roles to men. So we're, we're a, an industrial company, utility. We've got engineers. We've got power station operators. We've got a contact center. We've got marketeers, lawyers, accountants. And what we found, and the biggest driver of the 35% total gap is not pay equity, but it's actually women in different types of roles. So we've got many more women in our contact center, for example, which are generally lower paid than our engineers and our power stations who are predominantly men. And so to close the total gender gap, we've got to find a way to get more women into engineering. Mm. Um, And that's the big challenge we face as a business. So it was that realization that pay equity is a really important part of it. Um, Leadership progression is a really important part of it. But there's another underlying issue we've got to solve that that encouraged us about two years ago to disclose this in our annual report and try and create a discussion um, about how we fix that problem. And you're talking about the gender gap do you address the ethnicity pay gap? We do, in a, in a sense. Our focus is more about how do we get a better balance of ethnicity in the organisation at this stage. It's, it's sort of further uh, further down the development curve. Um, we're not yet reporting 
ethnic gap differences. And really, one of the challenges is you've got to have a reasonable portion of your population, various ethnicities or any group you're measuring, in order to have a comparable like-for-like comparison. So it's, it's really complicated. But it still seems to me that, you know, we're talking about the 50th year of the Equal Pay Act, that there are such big gaps. Why, why do you think that is? Well, my hypothesis is, and this is why we need more companies to report their gender gaps and their pay gaps and their pay equity gaps, because my hypothesis is that until you start to look at it in detail, you can't really understand the drivers. And what we found through this journey that we've been on, which is about four years now at Genesis, is when you start to look at the data, you start to see what's driving it. And then you can start to address it. And we know that we can't address this um, on our own. So the pay equity gap, which is just like-for-like roles, there's no excuse. We can do that on our own, and we have a six-monthly process where we review employees and various levels, and we, we, we take action. And I think every company is in control of that. Leadership progression, getting more women into more senior roles, takes time, requires development of people, requires opportunities. But when you start to look under the skin of what's enabling it and what's holding it back, you start to put in new policies that help create that, that, up, that upward tick. But the total gender gap, the, the, the 35% for Genesis, which is the median to median, is a really difficult challenge. And so we need more companies to, to report their data so that they can also understand what's driving their companies and then we can get some collective action on this and and one of the one of the work streams in uh, the champions for change group is very much about taking our knowledge here that we're learning and trying to take it to the wider the wider community um, both government and private and public sector to try and solve this together mm. you know one of the one of the solutions often talked about is we need more women going into technical qualifications well that's not easy to achieve quickly and it's going to require concerted effort from businesses, um, private, public, and also government to make it happen. Um, and so, yeah, I think our, our call out today is we need more companies to disclose their gap because only when you start disclosing it, you start focusing on it. And it's like everything in business. If you report it, you act on it. And the more companies that report it, the more we'll get a deeper understanding of the problems that are causing it. There have been waves of equal pay action and a few false starts. Campaigns in the 1950s led to the Government Service Equal Pay Act. Then further action resulted in the Equal Pay Act of 1972. Then it became clear that while that did make a difference for, you know, say, a woman bus driver and a male bus driver, they had to be paid the same it still became clear that lots of women were in occupations that were completely undervalued and that, in fact, there wasn't a comparator because men weren't working in those jobs necessarily, so it wasn't you weren't able to fix it that way. You needed to be able to compare a different job, and so that's when I got involved um, in an organisation called the um, Coalition for Equal Value, Equal Pay. So I've been involved in this one since the 80s, mm. and there have been an, a number of attempts um, to try and deal with the pay equity issue. Critical to all of this was the Christine Bartlett case. And the equal pay advocate Christine Bartlett changed the lives of thousands of New Zealand's lowest paid workers. Rest home workers are about to get a $2 billion pay rise. The government's finally agreed to settle a claim they are underpaid because most of them are women. A rate between $23.50 and $27 an hour. For all. <laughs> 
victory for Christine Bartlett. Her efforts culminated in a $2 billion settlement, which boosted the wages of 55,000 workers by between 15 and 50%. She spent 20 years working as a caregiver in rest homes for close to the minimum wage. Now the government forced to pay her and thousands of women what they deserve. Absolutely brilliant. And I get very emotional. I'm emotionally happy about it. It's been a long time coming. The issue of looking not just at the gender pay gap by itself, but also looking at the ethnic pay gap and then putting the two together, you know, so the situation of Pacific women, 27% pay gap from a, a European male worker on, on average. Again, you know, there's work going on in that place now too. So um, Karanina Sumio, the EO commissioner, uh, has got a Pacific pay gap inquiry underway and she's pushing for changes to the Equal Pay Act to include ethnicity as well. So these have all kind of been, you know, waves and developments uh, and it really is time for this, this issue to be sorted. Which brings us back to today's Mind the Gap campaign for more companies to open up about their pay gap. Why do you think it is that only four companies are currently reporting it? Well, I can't talk for them, but I have, a, I have a hypothesis there that there's a bit of fear to reporting it. I mean, I could tell by the tone of your voice when I said our total gender gap is 35%, you were a little bit shocked. Um, but it's only when I then explained that our pay equity is below 2%, but we've got a difference in types of roles within the business that women and men go for. And I think there's a bit of fear in reporting it. Um, because there are some big numbers out there, particularly in businesses like ours, where you've got a disparity between technical qualifications and maybe more manual work, more part-time work, which might, might have attracted more women in the past. So, you know, we need to break down that psychology, really, and just get it out there. Um, yeah. If you know what your pay gap is, then you're going to do what you need to to solve it. That's the, that's the premise. Yeah, right. But, I mean, how often do you get a woman in the organisation coming to you saying there's so much unfairness in this organisation, we need to sort it out. I mean, I just wonder how easy it is for a woman to try and change things. Yes, I don't think we've ever had a woman come to us because they, they know that we're focused on pay equity and we report it. And we've had women who we've tapped on the shoulder and said, we've found that you are underpaid compared to your male counterparts for the role you're in, and therefore we're going to make an adjustment. And they're obviously very relieved when that happens. And so over the, over the last few years, we've corrected what was. Um, I think we we're in the 3.5%, level originally for our pay equity gap, and we're now 1.7%. The challenge we have is we're often importing it. So, you know, we're hiring and hiring people all the time. So we've got women coming in from other companies, and we can't always and don't always see the gap in the in the recruitment process so we put some processes in place to improve that for example so we now we now don't ask someone what their pay is or their expectation is when they're when they're being hired so we make sure that their pay is benchmarked to we use hay band so to to a hay band so there's equal treatment there when people are coming in but yeah we don't we don't have women um complaining to us because they know that we're focused on it and we're doing it the right way and they can see the data do you think it should be mandatory? If there are so few companies that are doing it voluntarily, should it be mandatory? I think you have to be careful when you mandate reporting. Um, I'm not a big fan of that, but I think there's a there's a call to action and there's a there's a good logic in in it. So I think part of um, part of the process here is to encourage as many companies as possible to do it. Um, and mind the gap. Um, nz, which is the organisation that is pushing this hard 
is is out there trying to encourage companies to report. So I think there's a there's a business case for it. Um, you know, if you're if you're an employer of, of talent, we're in a war for talent. We always are. Um, people want to work for organisations that are um, candid, um, disclose and report what's going on, um, and do the right thing. So I think that's the business case for any any company in New Zealand that want to attract talent to make sure they're being completely transparent with what's going on. Other countries do, though, don't they? Other countries have mandatory gender pay, gender gap reporting. They do. Uh, I know the UK certainly does. Um, I think the the challenge with that is, as as I mentioned earlier, what we've learned through this process is the different dimensions of the total gender gap. Some of it is related to pay equity and some of it isn't. So we've got pay equity, leadership progression, um, and then the choice of career that people make, um, which causes some of the challenge there. By mandating it, there's a risk that it's misunderstood, that just one number is reported, the median to median. And if the, if it's misunderstood, then the solutions that are put in place are not going to be effective. So I'm not a fan of mandating. How many women do you have at Genesis compared with men? Um, we're about 45% women and 55% men, roughly. Um, and the same rough proportion at leadership levels, but but we've got big disparities by area of the organisation. So if you go to our retail contact centre, the majority are women. Yeah. Whereas if you go to our power stations where we've got a lot of engineers, the majority are men. So as an organisation, we're reasonably balanced, but we've got big differences by area. And that's actually what's causing that total gender gap. We've got lower wage contact centre staff who are women, and we've got higher wage engineers who are men. Mm. And so the, the the median salary for a man is higher than the median salary for a woman. Um, I, I say carefully, the, the way the maths works here is I could close our gender gap by replacing women with men in our contact center. But that wouldn't be the right thing to do, and it's absolutely not what we're going to do. Um, but that's the way the maths works, because we've got more women in lower wage careers. So it comes back to how do we solve that? We need to solve that collectively as a country, not as an individual company. And that requires a good, honest discussion around some of the causes of that. What's your feeling like? You're saying that yours is at 35%. Do you have a goal? I mean, getting it down to zero seems like impossible. We don't have a target because some of this will take generational change because the examples I've given you is the career choices being made are part of the challenge. We do have a goal to get as close to zero on pay equity, which is currently 1.7%. Um, it's a constant battle. Every six months we review it, we, we take action, we make adjustments, um, but then it pops up again because it's an inherent market issue. So if, if, only one of, if only a few companies are focusing on it, then you, the challenge is when you're hiring people, you're importing that, that equity gap. So it's constantly popping up. We're popping out. It's like whack-a-mole. Um, it may never be totally zero. And we've had examples, by the way. So I'm giving you the averages, but we have parts of the organization. We've actually pushed men's salaries up at times because when we've done the equity review, we found that a man in a like-for-like role is paid less than a woman. And so there are examples where men have had their pay adjusted too. But it has to be done thoughtfully um, and done with an understanding of, as I've said earlier, the tenure in role, the performance of the role, and that it's not just a black and white adjustment. And we take some people on a journey over, over time on this too. We do it in stages. If there's a summary comment for me, it would be know what your pay gap is, 
and therefore when you know what it is you can do something to solve it that's the most important thing for any business in my view this is where where we're laying out the challenge to be frank i mean at the moment mind the gap is an organization that we've got 35 organizations supporting including the human rights commission the ywca national council of women a number of unions global women so we're really laying out that challenge but the reality is that employers could you know also be challenging each other on this issue and we are also going to campaign around mandatory reporting so i guess the point really is here companies can decide to front foot this and do something about it now or we can campaign for legislative change and then they would have to do it when you were the young woman in the 1980s starting to campaign for this <laughs> did you expect that in you know 40 years time that you'd still be battling for it um, to be honest, I'm young and optimistic, so I probably thought we would have made more progress than we have. Um, there's been a few false starts along the way. There's been attempts to get legislation in, which then have been overturned. Um, but look, you know, it is an issue that, that I think time has come. I do think that the majority of New Zealanders do not support people getting you know lower paid because they're women or because they're maori or because they're pacifica there is some momentum on this and we all can see the impact of of you know work and decent pay on our lives and our ability to to raise children to participate in society and all of those things at the moment with the you know covid pandemic you know, some of those inequalities are becoming even more apparent. Mm. And I think that therefore the, the the pressure to start to address some of those inequalities is even higher in my opinion. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Jeremy Ansell engineered it. Thanks to Carol Beaumont and Mark England. Kakite anō. Ka